morning we come to the last of our messages in this section of the book of Romans, uh, Romans chapters 9 through 11, which are somewhat of a, of a parenthetical, although a, an essential aspect for us to understand God and the way that he relates to uh, his people. Uh, next week we begin Advent, uh, amazing enough, and so we will move from our series in Romans to a series, an Advent series, which will be taken from the book of Romans. Just, we thought we, with all the uncertainty in the world, we thought we would do some continuity here, but, uh, uh, but we'll be looking at the themes that, uh, of, that are associated with the promised Christ uh, beginning next week. Uh, this morning we look at Romans chapter 11, and normally we read the entire passage uh, but this morning, for uh, the sake of, uh, while we're going to work our way through the entire passage this morning, our reading will be verses 1 and 2, and then verses 11 and 12. Now, normally we read the entire passage, it's symbolic to, as a reminder that we are under the Word, that this is our authority, and it also kind of gives us some parameters so that when we read the Word, you should expect that that's actually what we talk about. The idea to read a passage and then go talk about something else, uh, that's not what we want to do. So we read so that you can hold us accountable and that we all would be under the Word. Uh, but sometimes when you have long passages, it's appropriate to read representative verses, and that's what I want to do this morning. So Romans chapter 11 Verse 1, Paul says this, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Now verse 11, so I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? The word of our God. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this passage, we pray that you would open our minds and our hearts that we may see and hear what you have revealed to us, that we may gain understanding and not merely for uh, satisfying our intellectual curiosity or theological purity. But we pray that you would grant us understanding so that we would know you better and know how we might live in relation to you. We thank you that you've not left us to speculate, but that you have given us your word you have given us your spirit who inspired the word, who illumines it to us. And you have given us your son, who is himself the word incarnated, that in him we may know you. So Lord, as we come to this section, we pray not only that we would understand what has been written here and recorded, but that we would see your son. And in him, we would see you and rejoice. Father, receive our worship as we lend our minds, our hearts, and our ears to listen to your voice. We pray all things to your glory and for the good of your people. In the name of Christ Jesus, amen. 
I begin with a, a question this morning, mostly because I'm, I'm somewhat curious. How many of you here are of Jewish ancestry? Is there anybody who has Jewish uh, forefathers? All right, I see one hand. That's pretty much what I was expecting. Uh, the reality is uh, that when we gather together as a church, and it's, it's very unusual uh, in a lot of our churches, even in evangelical churches, for there to be people of Jewish ancestry. We are the Gentiles that are spoken of in this. Uh, we are descendants of the Gentiles uh, who were the beneficiaries of, of the gospel uh, that was brought to the world through the Jewish people. And it would be easy for many of us, well, for pretty much all of us except for one, uh, to assume that Romans 11 has very little or maybe even nothing to do with us. But whether one is a Hebrew or not, Romans 11 is important for every one of us. See, Romans 11 answers uh, this important question. Has God forsaken his covenant people? Has he gotten tired of them and then just rejected them, forsaken them, and, and then moved on? Now, obviously, if you are of Jewish descent, that would be an important question to you. But it really should matter to every one of us, because if God has forsaken his covenant people in the past, well, then we would have no reason to assume or to presume that he wouldn't or he couldn't do so again in the present or at some point in the future when we fail, when we rebel, when we as the church, the, the, the people of God today, uh, fail to be what we ought to be. We would have no assurance of our relationship with God. We would have no reason to presume that we have some future in God's eternal kingdom. But Romans 11 answers this question definitively for us, and it's also pregnant with other significant issues that point us to the hope for all of the nations that God has intended from the very beginning. And so we begin with, with the question. Paul jumps right in in this chapter with, with the primary question. Has God rejected his people Israel? Now, the reason for this question is because, as we have been studying this book, in Romans chapter 8, Paul made some astounding declarations of the fact that if you are in Christ, nothing can separate you from the love of God. And he's writing to a congregation in Rome that is filled with those who are Gentiles who have come to believe in Christ who has risen, and Jews who have come to believe in the Christ who is risen. And as Paul is writing the first eight chapters of Romans, if you are of Jewish descent, if you grew up Jewish, you might be excited about the promises of, and, 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 and the power that you have seen in Jesus, but a lot of what Paul is writing would probably make you chafe because all of these promises were previously given specifically and exclusively to the Jewish people. And then there were people from the nations that were uh, proselytized and joined and became Jewish and then became the beneficiaries of the covenant as well. But these promises were exclusively given to the Jewish people. And now all of a sudden after Christ and Paul the apostle is talking as if these belong not to the Jewish people, they belong to, well, pretty much anybody who, who comes to Christ, and the Jewish people seem to be excluded. And part of what Paul talks about is that there came a time in history, and everybody who was Jewish would have understood that, that the Jews had rebelled against God, 
were scattered. And even in the present day, the day that Paul is writing, not only had the Jews in the past rebelled against God, but many, most, the vast majority of the Jewish people had rejected God's promised Messiah as he came into their midst. And consequently, it seems like now those who were the recipients of the promises were on the outside looking in, and the promises seem to be shifting to the Gentiles. And so it's an inevitable question. Romans 9 through 11 was written to answer some of those questions. Paul gets to the heart of it right now, and he asks this question, has God rejected and forsaken his covenant people? And Paul gives a very simple answer, by no means. In other words, no way. No way, and no way is that happening. And then Paul gives us two examples to, uh, to support his, his answer to this question. The first example he gives is himself, his own experience. Now, he could have pointed to any of the disciples, any of the apostles, because every one of them came from a Jewish lineage. But Paul points to himself, perhaps not only because it was most immediate, he knew his own story best, um, but perhaps because his story illustrates the, the nature of God's grace in a way that the others would do so less vividly. Because Paul, among the Jews, had risen to a position of power. He refers to himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews. Even in this passage, he says, you know, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. And and that's where he's a Hebrew of Hebrew, a Jew among Jews. He had risen to prominence. And then as the church began to gather and began to grow, Paul, in his position of authority, became a chief persecutor of the church. He was the Osama bin Laden of the day. Where the church was uh, alive, he was a terrorist. He sought them out in order that he would be able to, he would eradicate them. And yet Paul says, but God in his mercy, he gave me grace. And if he gave me grace, and I'm Hebrew, I'm a Jew, well, then he's not done with the Jews. And then he moves to another illustration. He shifts from his own experience and gives the illustration of Elijah's experience. And at first, when you read this, because in, in verse 2, the second part, do you know the experience of what Scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? And then here's what Elijah, at a time of darkness in Israel's history during the the reign of Ahab and and Jezebel, when the people at best were apathetic, but in order for self-preservation to protect themselves against persecution, went along with the rebellion against God. And Elijah is in the midst of a, a pity party, and he declares this, Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left and they seek my life. Now, when we read that, what Elijah was saying, and we, we look at that and say, well, that would pretty much be a justification for God. Seem like good reason for God to reject his people. And yet, here's God's response to Elijah. But what was God's reply to him? Verse 4, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not, not bowed the knee to Baal. In other words, when it looked like uh, to Elijah that he was the only one left, you know, he was saying, I'm the only faithful one. I'm, you know, it was today, I'm the only Christian left. I'm the only faithful Jew left. The Lord said it's not quite like it seems. 
I have 7,000 people that you're not thinking about or that you're not aware of who have not compromised, who have remained steadfast, who have been faithful just as you are. I have a remnant of people who belong to me, who love me, who are called according to my purpose. And so in the illustration that Paul is giving to us, he's saying that God was telling Elijah that even though it seems like they had been forsaken, he was still at work, he still has a people. And then Paul goes on and says, just as there was a remnant then, there is a remnant now. I have a people among the Jews who belong to me, who love me, who are called according to my purpose, who have received and are receiving the benefits of, of that salvation. And just as there were in Paul's day, there is a remnant of Jewish believers today, whether they are associated with Jews for Jesus or any of the other Messianic or just people that are of Jewish descent that are in other normal evangelical congregations or other Christian congregations that are God's people by the virtue of God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul, as he, as he speaks here, as, he, as he's writing to us here, and he gives these two examples, he goes on after he says that there is still this remnant. The point that Paul is making here is that the remnant, or those who are, are chosen by grace. Well, let me read the passage so that I have that. Paul says here in verse 5, so too at the present time there's a remnant chosen by grace. And here's the point that he really wants us to focus on. He answer, asks this question, and he answers the question is, has God forsaken his people? But then he draws our attention back to the primary issue in verse 6. If it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. And so the point that Paul is making, the, the remnant of those who are God's people, they are people who are chosen. They are chosen by God's grace. And Paul emphasizes, if it's by grace, if anyone who belongs to God is chosen by his grace, then it has nothing to do with any works that anyone would do. Because if there was our works played any part, then it would no longer be grace. That's the, the logic that the apostle Paul is, is using here. But Paul's also addressing an error that speaks not only to the Jews of the time that Paul is writing, but speaks to many Christians today. Because there are many Christians who ought to know better, but say things like, okay, well, salvation during the Old Covenant was by keeping the law, and salvation now after the death and resurrection of Christ is by grace through faith. But what Paul is saying here is that it is all by grace. It has always been by grace through faith. That God's remnant people, whether it was during the time of Elijah, during the time during, in the church in Rome that Paul is writing to, or today, that God's remnant people believed God and it was credited to them, to them as righteousness the same as their father Abraham believed God. Simply by believing God, he was declared and credited with being righteous. 
There has always been only one way of salvation in redemptive history, and that is by faith in God and in the promise of God, by believing God and his promises. And it is in believing that anyone is credited with being righteous, whether they are Jew or Gentile. Okay, now, Paul's answer to the question, has he forsaken the people? And Paul's answer is, by no means. He has not forsaken his people. The evidence is that he has a remnant, he himself testifying to it. Any other person who is a follower of Jesus Christ, who is of Jewish descent, is a testimony to the fact that he has not forsaken his people. But the people in Rome would have been looking around at one another, thankful for those who were themselves living testimonies. But all of them would have also been likely aware of family members who had not received Christ, who had not joined with this new expression of the family of God called the church. In fact, not only family members, but friends that they'd grown up with, the vast majority of the Jewish people that they knew. And so was God done with them? Had God just said, okay, well, I'm not going to be done entirely. I'm just going to take a handful of people, a kind of a random sample, and then I'm done with the rest of the people. And Paul asked the question, have they stumbled so as to fall? In other words, have they... Have, have they, you know, kind of tripped up and now become so broken that they are no longer of any, any use to God, that God has no place for them? And, and what Paul does is he turns his attention to true Israel. Because remember, what Paul's already said, not all Israel is Israel. Not everybody who was born into Israel, not everybody previous to, that belonged genetically to Israel were truly ever the people of God. And so it, it begs a second question. What was God's purpose for Israel? See, for us to understand what Paul is saying here, we need to understand his original purpose in the first place. And we go back to Genesis chapter 12 to give us the answer because it's in the calling of Abraham that God had promised that he would create a people for himself. When he called Abram from among the Gentiles, there was no Israel. There was no people. But God calling Abraham and said, I'm going to make you great, and from you I'm going to make a great nation. And through this nation, I'm going to bless the entire world. And in order to make sure that this happens, I'm going to bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you because you and your people, your descendants, who will be number more than the sands on the shore and the stars in the sky, you're going to be my people and I'm going to display my glory and my grace in you and through you. And because of you, you're going to bring the nations to me, people among the nations, are going to get to know me by you and by the way that I relate to you. And if you read through the Old Testament and you see that there were times when Israel remembered their purpose and their mission, 
Their purpose was to be the people of God, distinct, relating to God, but they were always for the purpose of drawing people from the nations. You see different examples of Gentiles being brought in, playing significant roles in redemptive history, whether it's Rahab or or Ruth and, and other examples. They joined and became part of the Jewish people, part of the people of God, and that was Israel's purpose. Their mission was to let people know God so that people would come to God. And when Israel remembered their purpose and remembered their mission, they experienced season of blessing and, and revival and, and renewal and prosperity. But when they forgot their purpose, <coughs> excuse me, when they began to think that we're God's people, God loves us, God doesn't love the Gentiles, he doesn't love other people, in fact, he dislikes them, he only loves us. When they began to be proud, when they began to Uh, focus primarily on themselves and not on the purpose for which God had made them a people, God would allow them to go their own way. And eventually they went so far and God cut them off and scattered them. And so it's understandable that people would wonder if God was done with them. But even when he scattered them, it was essentially because he said, look, you're no longer functioning as my people. You're no longer doing what I had created you to be. You're no longer a reflection of my purpose. That purpose was to be the people of God, who love God, who love their neighbor. But the question is, did they stumble so much as to fall? That, you know, it's one thing to trip. It's another thing to fall and break yourself. Is God finished with those who are not part of the visible remnant? Paul writing to them today, that that day, or even those of Jewish descent today. And Paul says, by no means. In no way. In fact, as we look in this passage, verses 11 and 12, so I asked that they stumble in order they might fall, by no means, rather that Through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. And so he had used Israel in order to bring the people to him. And now in Christ, as people from the nations are coming to him, and most of Israel has rejected them, God's blessing has been put on his people now called the church. But what he's doing is for those who were of Jewish descent, who were the original recipients of the promises. They're now looking at the church and saying, those promises are ours. And they become, purpose of becoming jealous like a two-year-old after a newborn is added to their family. That's my father. That's my attention. That's, that's, those are mine. So that in their frustration, in their need, they will return to God. As I was thinking about it this week, I really thought about it this way. There's a a very familiar story for anyone who's read the Bible, even those who have not. It's known as the parable of the two brothers. We often call it the parable of the prodigal son. You're familiar with that at the end of the story, when the rebellious son comes home and receives grace and is in a wonderful embrace of his father. The older son has gone out to hide in the barn frustrated, angry that his father would have grace on this one who had no right to receive anything. 
And when the father comes out to him, he says, look, all my life I've slaved for you. And yet this one comes back and you give him everything and I've had nothing. And so there was an exaggeration that happens when you're angry and frustrated and selfish. But at the end of the story, only one brother has a relationship with the father. What Paul's describing here would be this. Just imagine that there was a sequel to that parable. It's the sequel of the story of the older brother. And in that parable, the older brother looked himself in the mirror, saw how foolish he looked, and then recognized that the one who could love the rebellious one also could love him. And that love would break him of his own self-righteousness, and he comes and is restored in relationship. That the jealousy broke him, and in that brokenness, he became whole. That's what Paul is saying here, is that he is doing, he's not done with the Jewish people. That while his blessings are on his people, the church, he has not forsaken the people who were the original recipients of that blessing. There is a remnant that is participating in the body of Christ now, and there are others who will be brought in later as they recognize their own foolishness and recognize that through faith in God's promises and the promised Messiah, they too can experience the promises that were originally given to them. And that brings up an interesting question, then what is the relationship between the church and Israel? See, there's, there's two common ideas about the relationship between the church and Israel that permeates pretty much any, any church or any evangelical church. One is the idea that there's a replacement that has taken place. You know, Israel had their chance. They struck out several times. So God benched them, brought in the church, gave them a chance at bat, and then, you know what? Cut Israel entirely because, you know, the, the new guy was doing better after all. And so some assume that there was a replacement. Israel had their chance, and now he's done with them, and we, we've moved on, and now we're, we're given the church a chance. And so we're in the church age. There's another one that says, well, that, that doesn't seem right. And they look at some of the differences between the Israel and the church uh, that we find from Acts 2 and on. And they come to this conclusion that there are two entirely different promises. And so there must be two entirely different destinies. See, Israel was promised the promised land, and the church has promised eternity. Jesus has gone to prepare a place in eternity for us. And so those theologians would say, okay, so here's the way it's going to unfold. Israel will inherit their land. They will get their land again and believe that, therefore, the reestablishment in the 1949 of the nation of Israel was the fulfillment of that promise. But the church will receive eternity. But there's a problem with both of those. Neither of those views reflect what Paul reveals to us here in Romans chapter 11. Here in Romans chapter 11, Paul uses two analogies where he shows the relationship between the church and Israel. They're both intended to show that God is not done with Israel, 
but they also show the significance of Israel. And so if you pick up with me, Paul is speaking here in verse 13, and he's talking to almost every one of us here. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order to somehow make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. In other words, he's speaking to the Gentiles. God had called him to be the apostle to the Gentiles so that the Gentiles would know of God's grace through Jesus Christ. And that while that's Paul's mission, he also has this passion for his own people. And so he says that here's my job. I'm going to minister to the Gentiles, and I'm glad to do that. But you know what? I still also want my own people to come to faith. And so while I'm going to minister to you, I'm hoping that my fellow Jews will also come and see what it is that I've been doing and what God's doing through you. In verse 15, for if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but a life from the dead? If the dough offered, first, uh, offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. In other words, he's talking again of the whole lump being Israel. And if you take a portion of that, the, the remnant, if that is holy, well then it, it came from something holy. It's holy, not on virtue of itself, but on virtue of the fact that God had established it. And then Paul uses another analogy, and then he, it's almost like he says, you know, the lump thing. But then, you know, he talks about an olive tree, and he thinks, I like that analogy. And he begins to, to build with that olive tree analogy that we pick up here. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. And so Paul's giving us this image of, of an olive tree. And he's saying, look, if the root is good, and then the tree is good, then the branches themselves are good. And he's using an allegory, and for us to understand, it might be helpful for, to, to kind of think uh, about uh, this, this olive tree. And when he's talking about the trunk, he's likely talking about the, the patriarchs. Now, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they are a foundation, not only for Israel, but for the church as well. The branches that naturally grew would have been Israel. Maybe you can think of the tribes of Israel, although I'm using that metaphorically, not, not specifically, but think of each of the branches as being the, the people, the Israelites. But the root is not Israel. The root is God himself. The root is God's covenant. The root is God's grace. Because it was grace that formed Israel in the first place. It was grace that called and made the patriarchs. It was grace, God's grace, that made that nation great for the purpose of reaching every nation on the face of the earth. And the analogy that Paul says, now, you have this tree. Now, what if God pruned this tree, cut off some of the branches, and in the places where he had cut off these branches, in part because they looked like they were dead, he decided to take not the natural, the, the cultivated 
olive tree, but some branches or puts in, cultivates in, and, and, and blends in some from a wild olive tree. In other words, he's, he's blending the two. He's putting together um, the, uh, some who did not belong. And he's speaking of the Gentiles, those who were not under God's law but were wild. And he puts them into this tree. And like any arborist understands, if you do that right, you can, you can blend these things and they too will bear fruit. And because this branch is now part of the healthy trunk, the healthy tree with tremendously healthy roots, it too is going to flourish. And, and so he says the church has been grafted in to Israel, Israel meaning people of God, church is the assembly of the people of God, and they are all one. It's not that the church has replaced Israel, but the church has become part of Israel. The church is Israel, and it is rooted in God's grace, just as the geopolitical state of Israel has, was formed by God's grace. And so rather than replacing, chopping it off and putting something else on, the Gentiles are now mixed with the Jews and form the church on the foundation of Israel in rooted. It's not a replacement, nor is it two different destinations. There's one plan of salvation that has always been, and there is one people of God that encompasses people from every tribe and tongue and nation, and yet it's built on the foundation of God at work in Israel. And then Paul says something that's interesting here. He says, so those of you who are part of the church, those of you who are Gentiles, those of you who are the new kid in town who are getting all the attention, those of you who think that you're getting something, don't be arrogant toward those branches that appear to have been cut off. And then he gives an illustration of that arrogance in verse 19. Well, you will say, well, the branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. In other words, you know, God saw you coming. You and I were of such value, and he needed to make room for us, so he cut a few things off so that he could have us. I mean, and so there's, there's an arrogance that, we have to be honest, is all too often prevalent and present among Christians. But God says this in verse 20. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith, so don't become proud, but fear. In other words, the only reason that you're part of this is because you had faith, and the only reason anybody's a part of this is by the basis of faith. But if you become, put your faith in yourself rather than in the grace of God, you know, it seems to be evidence that you're dead too. And God, who had cut the branches off, he's saying, you know, if there is no faith, then you're, you're not part of this. So don't become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. It is a warning to the church that our only usefulness, our only connection to God is not because we're the church in any tradition and mission or obedience, but it is by faith and faith alone. Practically speaking, it's important for us in the way that we relate to 
our Jewish neighbors, and the Jews around the world. A number of articles in 2020 have come out and talk about the rise of anti-Semitism in the world and in the church. And here's a warning in saying for God's people not to be part of that. He's not lifting the Jewish people or the present nation of Israel above the other nations of the earth, but he's not putting them under them either. There's a long history of anti-Semitism and, and certain things that we have in our own day that we, we're not even, even aware of, the roots of that. Historically speaking, that after Constantine declared Christianity the official religion of the empire, the Gentiles who now were declared Christians, since everybody was a Christian, began to violate this very principle in their antagonism towards the Jewish people. And there's actually a practice that many of us will participate in 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 about a month that is not inherently wrong, but the origins of it were in violation of what God is claiming. Do you know why it's our tradition to eat ham for Christmas? Or on Easter? It's because in the days after the church was established and therefore Christians therefore were, you know, the people of God, we're the special ones. They turned their attention on the Jewish people and said, now if you want to join us, you're going to have to do what you think is disgusting. You're going to have to eat pork. I'm not telling you don't eat Christmas ham. My guess is we're having one. We see in the book of Acts, God says, look, when I've declared something clean, don't call it unclean. There's nothing wrong with that. But the attitude behind the tradition is rooted in anti-Semitism. Almost none of us know that. But if you are a Jew, you know it. Sometimes there's things that are, there's our, 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 our foolishness is, is almost humorous. A friend of mine named Mary Tillis runs a ministry called Light of Messiah Ministries based in Atlanta. He travels around and shows the connection of the Old Testament, particularly some of the Old Testament feasts, and of Christ. This Passover is a tremendous, tremendous lesson. And whenever Mary goes to a church and shows the Christ of the Passover, he asks the church, then, let's go have a, a Passover meal afterwards. And he came to our church in Chattanooga, and he had said that we had, the week before, he had been in Columbus, Georgia, in a church that was just kind of a country church just outside of Columbus. And he said, you know, overall it went really well, but when we came down, time to go down to their, their fellowship hall, one of the ladies, you know, said, you're in it for a treat. We have a special meal. And Mary said, well, great. Did you, know, did you have any difficulty finding a lamb? And she said, well, we didn't find a lamb, but we got a really great deal on a ham. And he's thinking, so we're going to celebrate the Passover with a ham. They didn't mean anything by it, but it, there's, there's this me-centeredness. And God says, it's, it's an us. Don't be arrogant. Don't participate in this. And then he says something that is particularly astounding to me in verse 22. Because he says this, 
Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. So this is his instruction. When we look at God, we need to see God for who God is, not God for who we want him to be. We celebrate God's kindness. We are beneficiaries of God's kindness. But anyone who says God is love and thinks that is fully defining of who God is, is not doing justice to God. They're talking about a God of their own imagination. And Paul here is saying, as a warning to the church, who can become arrogant thinking that somehow we are now special as opposed to the beneficiaries of grace, when you think of God, remember his kindness, but remember his severity as well, because God won't be mocked. God is to be loved because he loved us, but God is to be feared because he is powerful and holy and righteous and just. So what do we do with all of this? Well, Paul gets to, I think, an incredible summary beginning in verse 25. He says this, lest, let, lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. The partial hardening has come upon Israel. Partial meaning some have come part of the remnant. It's also a temporary thing. Uh, upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Until, you know, in their lack of faith, God has brought in the church of the Gentiles of the nations so they don't have to become Jewish in order to become believers and followers of Christ and part of God's family. And then verse 26, and in this way, Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. It's an incredible promise. The deliverer will come from Zion. But you know what's interesting here? And it's very easy to miss. What Paul is doing here is he is quoting, essentially, from Isaiah 59, 20, when he says, a deliverer will come from Zion. But if you were to flip back and read Isaiah 59, 20, it says the redeemer or a deliverer will come to Zion or Jerusalem. Now, it's one of those things, don't try this at home. Paul's an apostle uniquely inspired by the Holy Spirit at the time, and he's making a twist, but you know, there is something different. In other words, in Isaiah, the deliverer is going to come, and now to the nations, the deliverer comes from Jerusalem, where he hung on a tree, for the salvation of everyone who believes. This is an incredible passage, it's just very subtle, but it's a great way to lead us into Advent. Because Paul's talking about Jesus. This is the gospel that he's talking about. And then Paul says, as he sums this whole thing up, about the relationship uh, between the Jewish people and the gospel. In verse 28, as regards the gospel, because he's talking about Jesus and Jesus is the gospel, they're enemies of God for your sake, but reg as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. In other words, it looks like right now that they're hostile to the gospel, so therefore they're hostile to the church, but the fact is God still loves his people. Their waywardness and whatever, it, he, he still loves his people. Now, there are a couple of things that are difficult, and I'm going to go very quickly through these things, but we, we see 
than the relationship between the church and Israel in verses 30 and 31. For just as you were at one time disobedient uh, to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you that they may also receive mercy. There is a symbiotic relationship between the church and the Jewish people. Doesn't mean everybody that is a Jewish is going to be saved, but Israel, all of Israel is not Israel, but it does mean that we are God's people to reach the ones who were the original recipients. Now people get confused as we read on a little bit further because it seems to imply universal salvation. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. And so some have assumed, well, that means, you know, he's consigned them to disobedience, but he's going to have mercy, so ultimately every Jewish person is going to be saved. But that is, you know, we have to interpret Scripture with Scripture. If not all Israel is Israel, then they're not all saved. The only ones that are saved are those who are elect from the original people of Israel, just like from the Gentiles as well. What, what this passage is saying is, look, he's consigned them to disobedience. In other words, they're counted as among everybody else that for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so the hope that they have is not because they were born into this lineage. The hope that they have is God's mercy, just like it's the hope for anybody else. It's not a promise of universal salvation for the Jews or for anybody else. But the same people, everybody across the world, it's a flat playing field. All are consigned to disobedience. All of us have disobeyed God. And now for the people of all the nations that will be called in, all those who are saved, are saved because they believe the promise of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm going to give Paul the final word here. How do we respond to all of this? And I can't do better than Paul. And we see it in verses 33 and the following. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. And so to him be the glory forever. Amen. Father, bless us with right understanding. Let us see you and thank you for letting us hope in Christ. We give praise and glory to your grace by which we are saved. Amen.